This morning we turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. The seventh commandment, like we said last week, this is one sentence. In your English Bible, it is two words in the Hebrew. And they say much. They say much to us all. We're going to speak a lot about marriage, but this is a message for the married, for the single, for the young, for the old. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this text and come to Your teaching more broadly, would You speak? Would You give us hearts to listen? And in our listening, would you draw out our need and show us how you meet that need in Christ? In his name we pray. Amen. Dear friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So we begin, I want to ask you a question. And where you go with this question is going to indicate much of where you go with the seventh commandment. How do you see the Lord, our God? Is He a stingy prude? Or is He a lavish lover? The Word's going to tell us much in regards to this question. If we see the Lord our God as a stingy prude, then, then our study of this commandment and our further unpacking of it is going to seem very constraining to you. However, if you see the Lord our God as He presents Himself in His Word as an extravagant pursuing, passionate, jealous lover who is ultimately made manifest in the person of Jesus who who pursues His bride. This is how you see the Lord our God, then you will then see the seventh commandment as loving protection. It's the question of how you see our God. Now, Married or single, how did you hear this word? Many of us hear it through the lens of brokenness. Many of us hear it through the lens of either past struggle or present pain. When it comes to sexual brokenness, And when it comes to marital oneness. And whether we have a theological lens for this brokenness or not, the confusion and the hurt that we feel and have experienced when it comes to sexual brokenness is an indicator that something's wrong. culture would say that sex is casual. But if that is true, why is the hurt so deep? 
The hurt is deep because you and I were created for something more. (laughs) We're created for something better. Like we did last week, you're going to hear a lot of echoes this week and in the flow and the, and the outline of our sermon. And we're going to go back to the early chapters of Genesis. Because what we need as we unpack this commandment is a biblical worldview. For sex, for marriage, for gender. So let's go there. Let's go even to the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis 1. Verses 26 and 27, we see that God in His infinite wisdom created man and woman in His own image, in His own likeness, male and female, He created them. The Word is telling us that the Lord our God fearfully and wonderfully created men and women to be different. <laughs> In other words, it is divine intention that drives our differences. And those differences in the divine intention behind them point us to a couple of very profound and important truths. These are truths, biblical truths, that are being rejected in our day and time in new and creative ways ways. Listen, I I understand um, the confusion that many of us, particularly many of the young people, are experiencing. Young people, you are being racked by confusing messages that are coming from all directions about what is gender. In the context of this confusing flow of of messages, the most compassionate thing that we can do is point you to truth. And the truth is this. Gender is not a cultural construct. Gender is not fluid. It is not a creation of our own desire. It is a biological fact of creation. And the differences that exist between the genders are meant by God to complement one another. You see, when God created woman, after He created man, He didn't merely duplicate the mold. (laughs) Woman and man are meant to be complementary to one another. He made a different complementary mold so that man and woman would fit together and in our fitting together would be better together than we are apart. It's the basis for biblical complementarity. And it's the foundation for marriage. So that is Genesis 1. If we then go to Genesis 2 and see how the Lord expands the action that was presented in summary form in Genesis 1, we see how God brought these two complementary genders 
together in a union called marriage. And he did so because man and woman were incomplete on their own. Genesis 2.24 is the first wedding ceremony. But I want you to see something very profound. In this wedding ceremony in Genesis 2.24, the man and woman, they did not respond with verbal vows. The first wedding ceremony was, in fact, an act of consummation. Summarized in what the Lord would, would give us in Genesis 2.24 in order to lay a foundation for all the generations that would come after is this. The two should leave father and mother and cleave to one another. Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, we look back on Genesis 2.24 as the very definition of marriage, but understand this, in defining marriage, they are defining it in terms of consummation. In terms of the sexual union between a husband and a wife. So maybe the best way for us to frame a conversation about sex is to think of it in terms of it being the marital sacrament. Let me explain what I mean when I describe sex between husband and wife as the marital sacrament. Uh, we've been doing um, a communicants class with some of the kids, and I've been talking to them about the sacraments and explaining to them that the sacraments are both signs and seals. And a sign is something that points beyond itself. It has deeper meaning. It, it directs our focus to something deeper more profound. The sign of the marital sacrament points through the physical oneness of the sexual activity between husband and wife to the spiritual oneness, the emotional oneness that exists in this union. But the sacrament does more than point as a sign. A, a sacrament seals kings of old would seal their, uh, their letters with a wax seal and a signet ring stamped into that seal to mark and protect the contents and to, to declare that those contents were the property of the king. You see, sealing marks. Sealing protects. Sealing distinguishes and in the sexual union that exists between husband and wife this physical act is an act of giving oneself wholly over to another and in that giving wholly over to another it is a declaration that I belong body and soul wholly to another Again, this is a seal of marital oneness. And this marital sacrament is meant to be enjoyed. There's a covenant renewal ceremony between husband and wife. So then in Genesis 2.25, we find the descriptor of that union. 
The husband and wife were naked and unashamed. There was nothing between them. Nothing to separate them. And there was no shame in it. Friends, this is the biblical basis behind the seventh commandment. As much as we need to hear the do's and do nots of the seventh commandment, we need to see why. And this is God's beautiful, loving, gracious design for man and woman created differently and complementary and brought together in this union. The basis behind the seventh commandment is not the shifting winds of the cultural, sexual, and marital ethic. It's the Word of God. So, as I began thinking about this at, at the beginning of the week, as I've shared with you before, I opened the week with some questions at the top of my legal pad. And the question I began with this week was this. Is the seventh commandment, the emphasis in the seventh commandment, is it on sexual purity? Or is it on marital oneness? Yes. <laughs> the emphasis is on both, and they are not separated. <laughs> the Lord is giving us His design for sexual purity. And marital oneness. Hopefully we have laid that case out from the Word that the Lord God in His wisdom and as an act of His abundance created man and woman for marriage and marriage for man and woman. And that marriage is to be an expression of oneness experience between man and woman ultimately that points us to the oneness we have in Jesus. And that oneness physically is expressed through the sexual union that is meant to be enjoyed by husband and wife in the context of a committed, lifelong marriage. Look, I've said oneness a lot. <sighs> Marrieds and singles. This message, this commandment, is meant to tell us to cherish that oneness and to reject anything in culture or in our own heart that might cheapen or break it. What does it mean to cherish oneness? Well, it means to be faithful to our marital vows, but it means more than that. For marrieds and singles alike, means to recognize the beautiful place of sex within the safe and secure bounds of committed marriage. And then to preserve our own sexual purity and that of our neighbors in thought, in word, and in deed. Well, that's what's required in the seventh commandment. What's forbidden? Well, what is forbidden is is the breaking of that oneness. So given the deep connection between marital oneness and sexual purity, what is forbidden is all manner of sexual impurity. Now in light of the biblical teaching, in light of the biblical worldview that we've tried to lay out, let's unpack this a bit. The seventh commandment prohibits any sexual activity 
in thought, word, and deed that exists outside of a husband and wife committed in marriage. Now, our culture might look down on a cheating spouse, though less so than it once would have, but our culture would never be so rigid as to command against it. I was watching a TV show recently where husband and wife, after mutual uh, series of adulterous affairs, sat down with their child to describe or tell the child that they were about to enter into divorce. And the explanation they gave the child was that they wanted their child to be happy, and so they had come to realize that they had not taught their child to be happy. The best way they could do it was to separate their union so they could pursue happiness. That's the culture's teaching around all of this. Culture would not command against adultery. And culture would certainly not command against other forms of biblical adultery, including fornication, which is any sexual activity outside of marriage. Culture would never uh, command against homosexuality, which deviates from biblical uh, complementarity and is explicitly forbidden in the Old and New Testaments. Our culture would call these as expressions of our personal freedom. God doesn't call them freedom. God calls it sin. And turning away from His wise and loving design. In every area of our lives is sin. We must hear it for what it is. But again, more than merely a series of do's and don'ts, I hope you have heard as we've been going through the Ten Commandments that this time is meant to be shaping for us. So again, young and old, single and married, hear this and be shaped by it. Sex is a precious gift given by God. And so let us us look to the Scriptures to, to let the Scriptures shape our view. The sexual act is is an emptying of self and a giving of self over completely to another, but not just any other. It's a giving over to one to whom we have committed our lives to. And that means that the sexual union is meant to inform the whole of the marital relationship. So that's the context. For that relationship is one of other focus. It's one of sacrifice. And that's not the way that sex is described in our culture. In our culture, sex is described in terms of self-gratification. In terms of cheap pleasure. That shouldn't surprise us. If you think about the goal of, of warfare, what is, the, what is the, the tactical goal of warfare? It is, it is to attack the most, the most strategic sites. To attack the sites that, that lay at the heart of a, a nation's infrastructure. That are foundational. That is what a bombing campaign is meant to do. 
to go after those fundamental sites. Think about the precious gift of sex within marriage. It is a strategic and good gift given to us by the Lord, so it should be no surprise that it is the focal point of our adversary's attack. It is the focal point of spiritual warfare in our world and in our own hearts. And so do not buy in to the lies of the evil one. Friends, you know this. Deep down, you know it. Because the brokenness that we experience in terms of of sex and marriage is evidence to us of what we should know from Scripture. That sex is so much more than a physical act. So let's go to the heart of the matter. Just as we did last week, we go to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expands the commandments, not changes them, expands our understanding further, explaining them in light of the kingdom of God. We saw it last week in the sixth commandment. We see it again this week in terms of adultery. In Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus just has a way of cutting to the chase, doesn't He? (laughs) He is doing so exposing both our sin and our self-righteousness. Friends, our goal in preaching is to be faithful to the Word of God. To unpack the Word of God and, and to And trusting in the Holy Spirit through that unpacking to bring conviction of sin and comfort of the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing there in Matthew 5. It's a combination of convicting us of our sin and drawing us in to Himself. Not only speaking to the brokenness that we experience of the impact of of the sexual sin that we have committed and has been committed against us, but also to expose our own broad and deep guilt. Some of us, when when we think about the seventh commandment, are tempted to make a list of the adulterers, the homosexuals, and the fornicators who need to hear this word, who need to come under conviction of sin. But here in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, hang on, wait just a minute. Have you entertained a lustful, adulterous, fanciful thought? And you too are guilty. Because the outward action of adultery and sexual sin is rooted in the seed of lustful thought. So what is this lustful intent that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5? Well, it's not merely noticing uh, that someone is beautiful or handsome. It's not merely that noticing. It is when the noticing lingers and becomes desire. 
and when the desire lingers and becomes lust. This lustful intent can be directed towards another live person, <laughs> and it can be directed towards an image on a page or on a screen. That's right, pornography is a particularly hideous and dangerous breach of the seventh commandment that is on par with physical sexual activity and homosexuality. So I ask you, do you struggle with pornography? I ask that question oftentimes when I'm speaking with groups of men. I've asked that question with groups of young men. And as I ask it, oftentimes the eyes drop to the ground. I don't really have to ask the question because I know the answer already. Everyone in this room, man and woman, has struggled with lustful intent. I don't have to ask the question, but I do, and I do for this reason. Because if even in the silence of our own hearts, we need to respond. We need to respond to that question by acknowledging the darkness of our own heart, by acknowledging the depravity of our own heart, and confessing it to the Lord. It was once a question that was most appropriate for men, though to a growing extent pornography is becoming an issue for women, though I will acknowledge that women are prone to other versions of lustful intent. Men, by nature, are more visual. Women respond to emotion. And so for many women, lustful intent takes another form. It takes the form of, of fantasy. Fantasy of romance, the fantasy of what a marriage or sexual encounter should be. But as we ask these questions of men and women, young and old, married and single, these questions, they beg another, another question that we've been unpacking throughout our time in the commandments, and that is this, what is the sin beneath the sin? What is the sin behind our lustful intent? Is it a lack of trust in the Lord's provision for you? Is it a lack of trust in His design for sex? Is it buying in to Satan's deceit? This thought, maybe the Lord is holding out on you. Is it some form of, of self-focus, of not getting what you rightly deserve? And that's it. <laughs> because ultimately the sin beneath the sin for all of us is the sin of self of self-desire, of self-gratification, of self-focus. Self gets in the way of oneness. Look, at, at, Christ, at, at Christmas time, when, when we go to decorate the house, we put these wreaths on the outside windows, and, and I use these suction cups to, to hang the wreaths from the windows. But before I, I put this suction cup up against the window, I take some Windex and I wipe the window off. I clean it because any foreign object, any foreign debris will keep that suction from, from adhering. In our marriage... In our oneness, 
the debris that prevents the clinging is not a foreign object. It's internal. It is self. So what do we practically do about this lustful intent? We live publicly. Before God and before one another, we confess our struggles before the Lord and before one another. A friend, our spouse. We don't bear the burden in secret because this is the secret no one wants to acknowledge. Everyone in this room has our own version of this struggle. Don't bear it in secret. Because the secret has power. Don't live in fear and avoidance of the opposite sex either. But respect the image of God in them. Understanding your own sin nature and trusting in the Holy Spirit. And then when that lustful desire comes, flee from it. Flee temptation. This talk of warnings and fleeing. We've got to go back to the beginning. How are you hearing all of this? Is chains or is protection? The fundamental question I asked was this Is God a prude or is God a lover? And Scripture tells us that He is no prude. <laughs> Scripture tells us that He pursues His unfaithful bride. This is pictured so clearly for us in Hosea, in the story of Hosea and Gomer, where God commands Hosea to act out a prophecy by pursuing Gomer, his unfaithful bride. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 says this, And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Do you see that the Lord is commanding Hosea to do what he does, to pursue the adulteress? And then earlier in chapter 2 of Hosea, he explains it. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Friends, sexual brokenness is particularly painful because deep inside of us, the image of God desires oneness. And we've broken that oneness. And others have broken that oneness against us. And no matter what the world would say, the pain lingers because deep down, we desire the safety and security of a spouse who is not leaving. Deep down, we desire the spouse who will forsake everything to be with us. And dear friends, hear this above all. That is what we have in Jesus Christ. Like Gomer, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God we love. But Jesus pursues. Jesus redeems. Jesus loves. The Apostle Paul brings all of this to conclusion for young and old, married and single, when he describes the mystery 
of marriage. He says this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, let us of all people be ones who cherish this oneness. As we cherish and enjoy Jesus Christ, our groom. Lord God, we ask that you would, you would expose, you would convict, and you would comfort. We praise you that, that we find hope in the midst of this command in the person of Jesus. Would you draw us ever more closely in oneness to Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.